And next tonight, imagine something, something, something different. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to our special event tonight. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm a member of the DSASF Electoral Board, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest for tonight's program, Sean Scott. Sean is a Seattle-based writer and organizer, a member of the Seattle Democratic Socialists of America, and one-time executive council member for the Union Campaign Workers Guild. He was the Washington State Field Director for Bernie Sanders 2020, he is the author of the forthcoming book, Heartbreak City, Sports and the Progressive Movement in Urban America, which is due out in 2023 from the University of Washington Press. Uh, Sean is going to be giving a presentation on Forward Thrust, a ballot measure-based campaign in the Seattle area that sought to bring a host of municipal programs and services to the region between 1968 and 1970. Some of the Forward Thrust campaigns were successful, such as the creation of a number of parks and the construction of a municipal sports complex. Others, notably the proposed regional rail transit system, fell short. Uh, Forward Thrust is a project that bears some similarities to our own plan ballot campaign priority for 2022. It is therefore useful to inspect the history of Forward Thrust and learn from where it succeeded and where it fails. As we seek to advance a socialist agenda for San Francisco and attempt to build a powerful independent movement that can challenge the power of capital, we should understand the opportunities and pitfalls presented by the electoral arena as well as the shortcomings and contradictions of political progressivism and municipalism. We should also seek to place our ballot campaign work inside a longer arc of struggle, something that can be traced on a continuum from what preceded it to what comes next, and something that reinforces and interplays with other concurrent projects within our organization as well as around it. Uh, to supplement the session, we suggested reading a couple of Sean's articles on Forward Thrust uh, from a four-part series on The Urbanist, which I will share in a moment. If you hadn't read them yet, don't sweat it. Um, you can uh, feel free to read them some other time. After Sean gives his talk, we'll have a brief Q&A, followed by some breakout room discussions so we can reflect on the presentation together and consider the lessons we can learn from Forward Thrust as we embark on our own ballot campaign. Um, this session will also be recorded and released on our chapter podcast. Uh, with all that said, it's now my pleasure to give Sean the floor. Take it away. Yeah, Matt, uh, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, thanks to um, all our comrades in um, DSA San Francisco for the invitation to talk to you all about um, a subject that I've really kind of in a lot of ways been obsessed with since finding out about it um, maybe 15 or 16 years ago as a college student. Um, so I, I think it probably would be best to start a little bit off with just talking about um, defining some terms, talking a little bit about what forward thrust actually uh, was, what it represented, um, but also centering the enthusiasm that I think a lot of us, most of us, all of us hopefully on this call have for um, having cities that actually uh, look and act like cities, behave like cities politically, have the infrastructure of cities. Uh, uh, this is a controversial opinion in many uh city hall meetings that at least take place in Seattle, where you have a number of folks that I think would rather see um, Seattle, and maybe it's the same way in San Francisco, look um, more like a suburb of itself than be the city that people move to it to be. Uh, this is part of the reason why um, the example, the historical example, and the lesson of Forward Thrust to me, I guess, is so exciting. The other part is that I'm originally from New York City, so some of my earliest 
memories are of taking trains, they're of taking transit, they're of relying on transit, um, and not knowing that I was actually kind of getting a social political education while doing that. I think um, transit um, and density, having people actually afford be able to afford to live in uh, the cities they grow up in makes us smarter and better at a, as a citizenry um, and as comrades as well. So that's kind of um, where I guess some of my base of knowledge comes from, or my base of enthusiasm, I should say, comes from with respect to forward thrust. Um, Matt touched on this a little bit in um, his introduction, um, but you know, forward thrust, really what it was, was in 1968 and 1970, there were a number of issues that were facing Seattle that had to do with um, pollution, that had to do with congestion, that had to do with the fact that Seattle was a city that, like most other cities, experienced uh, quite a bit of population growth in the years after World War II. Um, the strain of which was very visible on the city's freeways, uh, was very visible in an open cesspool of a, of a landfill that was located where Husky Stadium is currently located. Uh, the problem was actually so bad uh, that um, when that landfill was actually paved over, the pictures of which are actually quite dramatic, I would encourage everybody to, um, to Google as I'm talking, the Montlake landfill, um, when that was paved over, um, the the city of seattle in that section of the city actually still registers extremely high levels of methane because it did nothing to actually um, change the fact that people were going to this open dump and and dropping their garbage there from uh, the time it opened i believe in the late 20s until it closed in the late 1960s swirling seagulls over the city um, over that section of the city that were so terrible that um, the city decided at one point in time um, to explode uh, fireworks to deter some of the seagulls that were congregating over the trash. Not the best idea in the world in uh, an area that has elevated levels of methane. Explosions were rampant. So shit got really bad is what I'm trying to say with respect to um, environmental decay in the city of Seattle. It was a very visible problem. Um, and Jim Ellis, who was in many ways the architect of um, Forward Thrust as a concept and as a political um, attempt, um, had a number of solutions to meet this, right? Um, first, um, Jim, first and foremost, really, uh, Jim Ellis, who was a civic activist and a Republican, which we can talk about a little bit later, um, said, you know, we ought to have some sort of mass transit system, a comprehensive mass transit system um, that would help to alleviate some of the congestion that we see on I-5. We want to see storm drainage um, advents. And you know, James Ellis had the idea of actually trying to use uh, the enthusiasm for sports and Seattle's civic egoism, frankly, to say, if we couple the construction of a new multi-purpose dome stadium, which eventually became the Kingdom, with this initiative for rapid transit, which was the centerpiece of the forward thrust initiative in its first attempt in 1968, what would probably happen is that voters would then have a positive association, right? people who were very, very enthusiastic about um, sports and in the 1960s at that point, seeing many other cities um, be able to enjoy um, new sports franchises and new amenities for them. Uh, coupling that with mass transit would actually make mass transit seem less controversial uh, of a proposition. Um, and so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, the story of forward thrust is a story of heartbreak because what happens in 1968 and a special election that is held in February of 1968 um, is pretty much all of the amenities that James Ellis, um, who's from Oakland, decided um, to partner with mass transit pass, right? Uh, 
The kingdom is um, passed enthusiastically. It leads to the eventual arrival of the Seahawks and the Mariners in the middle 70s. Um, the um, ballot initiatives for additional parks and arterial highways. Um, those highways, of course, being in a lot of ways a contradiction to what was represented by the mass transit that was um, sort of nearest and dearest to Jim's, Jim Ellis's heart. Those pass as well. Um, there are some initiatives for tra for uh, for public housing in the city of Seattle, um, which fail, unfortunately, as do uh, the initiative for the rapid rail transit, which would have gifted Seattle, I believe it was 46, excuse me, 47 miles of rapid rail transit would have been completed in 1985 um, and paid off by uh, at some point in time in the middle 2010s. Um, one way of sort of summarizing uh, the legacy of forward thrust in its original 1968 iteration was to say, um, you know, I'm sure many of us on this call have heard about the, the old saying of people being attracted to bread and circuses. It was really the circuses that are ratified and forward thrust. Um, and it was in the, it was the bread in a lot of ways that ended up failing. Um, but Jim Ellis, and I want to emphasize his, his Bay area roots here for obvious reasons was not somebody who was one to give up very easily. Uh, the Bay area and, um, you know, Berkeley in specific where Jim Ellis had spent a lot of time in a lot of ways was kind of, um, a place that really likes to impose a variety of social engineering on others while maybe being uh, somewhat reluctant to receiving some of that social engineering itself. Uh, the Bay Area was the home of modern exclusionary zoning. It is the home of modern policing, both of which were actually invented in uh, Berkeley during the progressive era. Um, so Jim Ellis was nothing if not tenacious, being um, somebody who was from Oakland initially. Um, and so he tries again, uh, 1970, um, is a very, very different political climate than even the 18 months prior. Um, excuse me, the, um, I believe it's 25 months prior from um, the 1968 attempt. Um, and what ends up happening is Jim Ellis seeing the election of President Nixon um, and all of the rhetoric that President Nixon brought to the table as far as being a law and order Republican, as far as somebody who really laid the groundwork for the modern carceral state and the war on drugs. Um, Jim Ellis decides since uh, what ends up happening with 1968 is that the uh, the sports stadiums are ratified and accepted, he's really going to kind of substitute um, a carceral facility, a new jail, um, as to sort of take the place that those stadiums formally did, right? So hopefully, um, in Jim Ellis's mind, uh, the association of a new carceral facility with this rapid transit, the reintroduction of a rapid transit initiative would make rapid transit uh, more likely to succeed. Jim Ellis is, is somebody who actually turned down a position in Richard Nixon's administration to be head of what became the EPA um, in order to pursue uh, forward thrust, the rematch, if you will, um, and see that through to fruition. Um, and of course, as most Seattleites would be able to tell you, 19, the 1970 election doesn't go any better then the 1968 election goes. Uh, rapid transit is once again defeated. Um, interestingly, so is the carceral facility. Um, in 1970, Seattle had actually um, underwent a depression that um, resulted from the cancellation of a, a lucrative Boeing contract that um, was going to lead to the creation of what was called the supersonic transport, provided tens of thousands of jobs in the city of Seattle. When that contract is canceled, uh, the city and the area are plunged into a deep recession that make uh, the funding mechanisms behind forward thrust, most of which are are wrapped up in 
um, civic debt and bonds very unpalatable. So I think there are a few lessons that are very, very um, important for all of us to glean from, from forward thrust. And we're kind of going in reverse here. I'm, you know, talked a little bit about the results, but also want to talk about the foundations of Forward Thrust as a political project. First and foremost, it was a centrist project, um, which meant that it was going to be liable to attacks from both the left and from the right, um, and that um, a lot of those critiques were going to land much heavier than they probably would have if Forward Thrust, in a lot of ways, had picked a political lane to operate in. Um, there was a um, student radical from University of Washington named Walter Crowley, um, who said that the forward thrust initiatives were akin to rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, that because uh, so many of the steering committee members from the forward thrust campaign were called from area business elites, area political elites, that it represented um, no real challenge to um, what Walt saw as the capitalist status quo. Uh, forward thrust was also attacked from the right by folks who um, looked at it and saw, in essence, at a peak of the Cold War, a communist boondoggle. Um, and this is much of the message that the General Motors funded opposition to forward thrust uses, um, the representation of forward thrust as, in a lot of ways, a communist kraken that is going to emerge from the Puget Sound, gobble up civic debt, gobble up resources, gobble up space, and impose um, you know, state-authored authoritarianism in the form of mass transit in return uh, was a lot of the messaging that was used against forward thrust in both its 1968 and 70 attempts. Um, forward thrust in a lot of ways was also a neoliberal project. I touched on this a little bit before, and neoliberal before, I think, um, the onset of neoliberalism, which we place historically or more likely to place in the in the 1970s, um, really has sort of these earlier examples in the 1960s that I think are often overlooked in the story that we tell about neoliberalism um, in the fact that it wasn't progressive taxes, for example, that were proposed to use that were that Jim Ellis proposed to use as a funding mechanism for forward thrust, but rather a uh, civic debt and bonds. Um, also, the fact that it was very much a grass tops project. Um, Jim Ellis's vision was that if you could just get enough lawmakers, enough uh, progressive organizations on board, uh, the right elected officials, then you will get the um, result that you would want, I think speaks to a very technocratic vision of politics that I think few people on this call would uh, seek to replicate. Um, and you also look at um, the fact that Forward Thrust wasn't a socially inclusive project. And we can talk a little bit more about this in uh, the question and answer. But what stands out when you go back and look at the marketing materials um, for Forward Thrust, centered as they were on sports, because again, the idea was that if you get people excited about the entire slate as a result of one or two uh, less controversial programs than some of the mechanisms or some of the uh, programs and the fun funding mechanisms that may have been more controversial would be overall more likely to be voted up. Uh, there's a great deal of erasure of Women's sports, certainly at that point in time, even though in the late 1960s, um, LGBTQIA plus sports are practically invisible throughout much of media. Um, this despite the fact that you had um, a number of women in particular that were actually um, winning championships of a sort before Seattle had many pro sports teams. Um, I would point to um, the track and field accomplishments of Ann Quast, among others, um, in the early 1960s, the fact that um, 
sports of a kind like double dutch being very popular in the, the central area in Seattle. Um, there's really no attempt that is made um, to reach out to um, LGBTQIA plus folks on the one hand and women on the other without being incredibly patronizing in the way that Forward Thrust was branded um, as a political project um, and as a, you know, as an electoral attempt. Um, you had um, interviews on the nightly news where the campaign representative for Forward Thrust said that um, the kingdom would actually be something that um, many women would welcome because it would give them a opportunity to uh, in his words, get dolled up on the way to the stadium, especially with the luxury seats that are in the stadium. Uh, not exactly what you would call a, a wholesome and effective marketing um, of uh, this ballot initiative. Um, and you also look at the fact that uh, Ford Thrust really did very little to appeal to Black Seattle in a period of time where there are many newly enfranchised Black folks as a result of the passage of the 1964 and 65 Voting and Civil Rights Acts. Um, many black Seattleites who would have been potentially eager to have cast a ballot, especially for mass transit and public housing, um, they were uh, black Seattle in specific 16% more likely uh, to have supported um, the transit and housing initiatives in particular than their working class white counterparts in the Seattle area. Um, and Fourth Rust really has no, in, no, no interest in doing uh, the competitive groundwork to appeal for those votes. Um, which I think is a lesson in and of itself. So we look back, you know, sort of at the fact that, you know, the real centerpiece of what Ford Thrust was supposed to represent was the 47 mile rail transit, comprehensive regional rail transit program. Um, and the fact that that did not succeed and that uh, Seattle eventually did uh, approve of regional rail transit in 1996, which led to the 2009 opening of the Link Light Rail. Um, I believe that at that time, that rail was somewhere in the order of about a dozen miles long, uh, which is to say a quarter of what Seattle already would have had if it had actually um, uh, voted up the uh, either of the 1968 or 70 uh, Ford Thrust initiatives. Um, if you want to take it a step further, it's actually the case that um, in 1912, there was um, also a plan that was rolled out called the Bogue Plan. Um, that would have been something on the order of 100 miles of subway plus a comprehensive park system. Um, so you begin to see really we're delving into a lot of Seattle history in specific comes down to what your pain tolerance is for missed opportunities. Um, and those are three really, really big ones. The 68 and 70 ones, I think, resonate a little bit more just because obviously they were a little bit closer in time. And for many of us, most of us on this call, uh, that if you were in Seattle, that would have been something that would have been completed by the time you were born and traveling and visiting to Seattle. Um, and so there are, you know, a few lessons that I think we can really take away and glean. I'm really excited to hear what some of the questions uh, from folks might be about uh, what Forward Thrust represented, where it failed, why it failed, some more specifics about um, those shortcomings, because I think especially as we're getting ready to, um, you know, look at electoral politics as a realm that could actually bring about some of the change that has been frustrated in, in other areas. Um, we want to make sure, though it's not everything, we want to make sure that we're not replicating uh, some of the same mistakes that have been made in the past, even if those were mistakes, even if those were mistakes that were made by folks that aren't on the same part of the ideological spectrum as we are as far as being part of the left. So um, I think we can just open it up to questions from there if there might be any. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Sean. I'm 
I'm going to tee off a couple questions of my own, but uh, if people want to get on stack to ask questions, um, you know, feel free to uh, get on stack in the chat. Um, and um, yeah, we can we can take however many we want. Uh, we can uh, get get the breakout rooms in, you know, when we get to them. So my first question for you is, um, uh, let's see, uh, did forward thrust have a lasting impact on Seattle's progressive political sphere, or did it fade once the campaigns ended? And what is its, um, you know, very big picture lasting political legacy? Yeah. So. I would say that it definitely had a lasting uh, impact on the way that Seattle urbanists, Seattle transit enthusiasts and environmentalists have approached and talked about transit. Um, I did mention that in 1996, um, a fraction of what would have been a comprehensive subway system ends up getting passed. And a large part of that has to do with the fact that the lessons of 1968 and 70 had been learned by subsequent generations of transit activists who said, okay, Jim Ellis tried a countywide approach that said, we're going to put the link light rail, or we're going to put a subway system in Bellevue. It's going to be in Kirkland. It's going to be in surrounding areas of Seattle, many of which are actually the first to betray and most vocally betray forward thrust. Uh, so what ends up happening in 1996 is transit activists then say, okay, rather than trying to build the spider web, can we get to just one strain of it? What if we put before voters a line that goes from Capitol Hill to the airport, focus on the uh, utilitarian nature of the route rather than the conceptual part of it and the um, part of it that was, I think, very charged in the 68 campaigns that had to do with um, staving off at that time, you know, a climate crisis that was in the in the distance. Um, and so having a in 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 and then building from a smaller line to larger component pieces in subsequent elections, that proves successful. Um, and it's not a it's not the take that I would prefer to walk away from because what what in essence the lesson that you would draw from that is that the less ambitious proposal was the one that did better. However, I think 1996 is obviously a very different political reality than we are sitting here um, in 2021. Um, but the attention, I think, certainly to uh, the tactical nature of how the election proceeded, uh, subsequent generations of activists learning from what happened prior um, is something that we could all take um, inspiration from. And you will see transit enthusiasts in Seattle continue to reference um, the defeats of 68 and 70. Um, you know, in, in large part, because I think um, for many of the same reasons that most people follow their favorite sports teams, part of part of the the collective bonding experience is around the misery um, and knowing that there were missed opportunities that were screwed up. Um, but that if you get the chance to do it again, um, hopefully you'll get a different outcome. So I think that there's there's kind of a cyclical nature to the way that a lot of transit activism has worked in Seattle. Um, and revisiting 68 and 70 is sort of the, the call to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Great, thank you. Um, next question I have is, what can socialists learn from forward thrust about what to do and what not to do when advancing our agenda on the electoral terrain? And is forward thrust a model success, a flawed premise, a flash in the pan, or something else? I think the, I think the, 
as I understand the question, I think the premise was very much flawed because the attempt was to build um, a universally accessible amenity, mass transit, by not having a universally accessible campaign. Um, the political dynamics of the late 60s were such that at the same time that you had many newly enfranchised, newly enthusiastic voters, you also had many voters in the King County area in particular that frankly were reactionaries. Um, in the 1968 presidential election, um, Richard Nixon comes very, very close to actually carrying King County um, as a law and order carceral candidate, right? Um, and the fact that Forward Thrust really didn't do a lot to counter the, um, in many ways, just overtly racist messaging that mass transit is going to build, is going to bring more minorities, it's going to bring more crowding, it's going to bring um, a host of urban problems that uh, people, I think, in, in, uh, East King County, East King County, in sp specific, so the part of the county that is not Seattle proper, um, people associated those problems with larger cities like New York City, with Chicago, and so they were very reluctant um, to grow up, basically. Um, so I think that Fort Rust was, in many ways, a very flawed premise, just because of the way that it proceeded politically was not in fitting with the aims of um, the ballot initiatives, right? Um, and so I think you can learn a lot from that just as far as making sure you're actually running the kind of campaign that fits with the values of, um, you know, the execution of the campaign has to fit the vision of the campaign. Um, and so where that wasn't the case, I think that forward thrust ran into, um, you know, it's defining problems in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and kind of a more pointed follow up to that uh, that question, um, you know, speaking to the, you know, kind of embracing the the carceralism and running on the new jail um, and leading into the uh, the Nixon era and the follow up. Um, you know, what is the um, kind of what kind of coalition? Um, did Forward Thrust uh, try to build um, in support of its broader agenda? Mm -hmm. And how should we as, as socialists and as, as the left, um, you know, how, how can we do that in a, in a very different manner, understanding that we will have a, um, a different kind of total vision for the project, um, you know, hopefully one that is, um, you know, adamantly exclusive of, um, you know, carcerality and, and police, policing and, um, you know, more, more about building power and, and building worker power and building socialism. Yeah, so I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. I just wanted to clarify um, this point. So the 1968 presidential election, um, George Wallace, right, who is a staunch segregationist, is actually running. Um, it was either a writing campaign or it was a third party campaign. I don't remember exactly which, but nonetheless, um, Wallace captures a little under 7% of the vote in King County. When you add that to uh, the vote share that Nixon got, actually a majority of King County voters, uh, though Hubert Humphrey is the one who wins the, the primary as far as King County um, votes are concerned, a majority of voters actually select uh, law and order type carceral candidates. And I think history would judge Nixon as very much George Wallace light in a lot of ways. Um, 
And so he goes on to become president, right? But you know, you ask the question about, um, and I think Jim Ellis sees that, and it's it's no mistake, um, especially with the fact that he's you know a, a died in the wool Republican, which we can talk about a little bit more. I think there's something significant about this. Um, turns down the job in Richard Nixon's administration, um, but does not turn down um, what Richard Nixon, in a lot of ways, introduces into American politics with the decision to use a, a carceral facility. Um, to attract enthusiasm for mass transit. Going along with this idea of a grass tops campaign, which was the kind of campaign that was run by Forward Thrust, um, you do note that among the 200 member steering committee, uh, 198 of whom I believe were white men, um, you see that there's a reliance on labor union heads rather than grassroots membership many of these unions then uh by definite by by demographics and today even still de facto were segregated um the union that was responsible for example for building uh the kingdom that eventually attracts the mariners and the seahawks was a segregated union um until labor activism by tyree scott um no relation i should say um actually opens up those unions to um black and brown Asian American workers. So the fact that Ford Thrust relied on the heads of labor unions, I think rather than building um, sort of ground up grassroots rather than grass tops enthusiasm, enthusiasm for um, the transit projects, I think is, a, is another part of the reason why um, it failed. Um, the legislative uh, pathwork for forward thrust, which are very technical and I won't want to get into um, too much, is really built in the couple of years before the 1968 election. So there again, you see sort of this idea that if we can attract um, enthusiasm from enough electeds, if we pass the right laws, all of which are very important, I wouldn't want to discount those as electoral solutions. But um, the fact that forward thrust fails in both both instances to really achieve both of its in, in both in the both the 68 and 70 election, I think, um, opens it up for this kind of scrutiny. And that's one of the things that you would be able to point to to say um, a grass tops campaign, especially when you were seeing more populist energy in uh, area politics and national politics, despite the um, conservative retrenchment represented by Nixon, uh, that was a mistake. Um, you had the campaign manager being interviewed in Seattle Magazine um, saying, you know, we're often asked what it is that we can do for um, the Negro, as he put it. Um, and there was a real attempt to sort of sidestep real questions of how forward thrust was going to deliver to particular ethnic groups that I think, ethnic groups and uh, social groups that I think were being more clearly identified as such in the late sixties than they had been at any point before. Um, and that was a mistake. There wasn't particular um, marketing, if you will, particular appeal um to groups that could have been energized by it and that was a big mistake can you talk a bit about your thoughts around a revitalized municipal package from later in the series yeah so um the question refers to the the fact that in the i believe it was the fourth part of a four-part series about this topic um that i had written for the urbanist a number of years ago i tried to imagine what a a contemporary uh, forward thrust would look like. In other words, what would a series of ballot initiatives that, first of all, actually passed um, 
all of which actually passed, what would that look like in Seattle's present? Um, and so a number of the ideas that were floated in that, in that, um, in that article, if I remember correctly, first and foremost had to do with making sure that Fort Rust was actually funded through uh, progressive revenue. Because the fact of the matter is that the fact that Fort Rust decided to fund itself in accordance with uh, massive civic debt and bonds, things of that nature, made it vulnerable. Um, and certainly the fact that Jim Ellis himself was a bond lawyer um, who would have been arbitrating some of the bonds between the county and um, various parties were um, forward thrust actually passed. Uh, that didn't help uh, the attacks um, that came forward thrust's way, the accusations that it was a boondoggle that Jim Ellis was not motivated actually by trying to save the environment. It was more about personal enrichment. Uh, that was an issue that probably could have been sidestepped if uh, it was funded through progressive taxes. Um, and of course, that was going to be a less palatable solution to the 200 members of the Forward Thrust Steering Committee because a lot of them were businessmen, right? So there again, you can see sort of the internal contradictions of the way the campaign waged sabotaging how it ended up playing out. Um, other ideas in that sort of the fourth part of that essay series had to do with um, the construction of a land bank. So the city of Seattle and perhaps the county having the latitude that it needs to actually enter into the housing market, in essence, as a land broker, buying up land and redistributing it to um, not-for-profit housing providers or uh, finding the revenue to build housing on it with its own housing authority itself. Um, the, those were two of the solutions that I think most about as being most pressing when this was written. I think it was in 2018 um, and still might be now. And it has to do with the fact that um, because of the explicit neoliberal turn in American politics, people are so used to seeing local government, and especially as having its hand hands tied, um, municipalities very much being played off of and against one another. Um, if you tax, you know, such and such a major business in the Seattle area, they're simply going to relocate to um, this other area, which will more gladly receive them. Um, and typically what ends up happening is that um, that argument works. The taxes do not get passed. The business relocates anyway. And so there you have all the problems that were posed by not having progressive revenue. And on top of that, um, fewer jobs because that that corporation relocated or at least your economy functioning differently because a corporation relocated. All of those, I think, can really be sidestepped by making an explicitly populist appeal for populist programs. And if the people who your program are going to benefit the most um, are being appealed to the least in the way that your campaign is being run, you're probably running not a very good campaign. Um, so I would look at um, just matching the values with the with the vision piece of it um, for what that could look like at the city level. Yeah, awesome. I think um, the question of, of neoliberalism um, and neoliberal austerity is something we are um, faced with pretty acutely in San Francisco right now. There are fights about just about everything in San Francisco mm -hmm. that has um, city money going into it, but we are we are feeling it in a number of key places. Right. Yeah, and and forward thrust really can't make that case just because of how the campaign was structured. I mean. You know, General Motors has a, a very long history in the 20th century of sabotaging mass transit. You go back and look at the fact that um, many American cities, I want to say most major American cities had very robust 
streetcar systems all the way up until the middle 1940s. Um, and of course, what happens there is the rise of the automobile and the automotive industry in the post-World War II years. Um, under the influence of them as a lobby, a lot of municipal municipalities, um, Kansas City, I think, being the most flagrant example, decide um, to defund and allow their streetcar systems to deteriorate in place of highway infrastructure. Um, and so it was really no different in, in the city of Seattle with respect to um, General Motors really coming out against forward thrust and funding much of the opposition to it. Um, as far as the, you know, the neoliberal piece, this is really significant. Um, you know, we, we sort of, we, we see in the 1970s, right, the sort of big picture um, and the most, I think, most widely circulated images of what deindustrialization looks like, major corporations packing up and relocating out of the country, big cities like New York City, losing out on large shares of their tax base and as a result having to go into debt, which then hands conservative politicians sort of the political mandate that they um, were seeking to push austerity programs. Really before all of that takes place in the 70s and 80s, you see these kind of earlier rumblings around um, the fact that the grand consensus that struck after World War II, um, big business in particular is dissatisfied with it. Um, you look at the the steel, the rising of steel prices in um, early in the Kennedy administration is sort of an early example of this consensus falling apart where major steel companies decide to raise steel prices by a couple of percentage points, um, which has a very disruptive effect on um, how the economy functioned at that time. Um, it's sort of an early sign that this great piece is not what it was all cracked up to be um, for many, many centrists and many liberals that were happy to see this grand bargain between business and labor after the war. Um, and I think, you know, forward thrust is another example of this where um, it's about debt, debt and um, appealing to business elites rather than actually trying to build sort of a more populist program. I see a second question here. Thanks for this question, Will. So it's, can you talk about the state of transit activism in Seattle today and how it relates to the legacy of forward thrust? Specifically wondering whether socialists are actively campaigning on that front or if it's more dominated by the neoliberal market urbanist types. I would say that in recent years in Seattle, um, I want to say that a lot of urbanists in Seattle of the sort that you're talking about, Will, have sort of seen the light um, because you have had left candidates run in recent years on platforms that included mass transit, that included ending exclusionary zoning. Um, and that and, a, and that the a chasm that I think which has existed in, in prior years in Seattle politics between the left and market urbanists, I think is, is um, less wide than it's ever been in many ways. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to have um, a couple of light rail stations that are going to open um, here in the city of Seattle that are going to expand on that initial 1996 rail that was um, that was ratified by voters in the middle of the Clinton administration. Um, I would say that the enthusiasm is pretty wide for transit at this point, and that it really just kind of highlights the, the the lost lost opportunity aspect of forward thrust in '68 and '70. But, you know, somebody who's a transit enthusiast, I think you could you could definitely look at and see um, and say that you'd want to have more enthusiasm um, among the left everywhere for for rapid transit, especially given the state of the climate crisis. So it's it's definitely there's room for improvement. But the way that I would answer that question is say that it's it's better now than it's been in past years, the relationship between um, urbanists and the left.
Great. Um, well, I think I'm going to start pivoting towards some questions more oriented to our group discussion, unless anyone else has any um, kind of last questions for Sean. Um, and um, Sean, this one, this one's kind of for you, but also for everyone else to start thinking about. So DSASF has a ballot measure campaign that is meant to complement our other chapter priorities, which are namely labor organizing in support of shared political goals and a commitment to black liberation, indigenous sovereignty, and combating global white supremacy. Uh, how do we square our broader, broader political aims of building working class political power and committing to racial justice with the nuts and bolts and political contradictions of running electoral campaigns? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. Well, I think I think a and it's a really good question. I think that that if a campaign is out of alignment, um, it'll become clear in one way or another. Um, in the in the way that marketing materials, who's represented on those, or the campaign materials, door literature, um, campaign ads, things of that sort. Um, but I would say that the you know the case has to be the case just has to be made that when you have groups of folks who have been historically excluded from the political process, number one, um, and groups, number two, that have largely as a result been uh, bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, number two, that when that's put together, I think most people, perhaps this is me being optimist, and it was, you know, I think it was Eugene Debs who said that the if you're a socialist in a lot of ways, you're by definition an optimist, right? Part of this for me is just looking and saying that I think that once that case is made potently um, and made clearly and made relatably, you can get a strong majority on board. Um, I don't think that there has to be a contradiction um, between the way that an electoral campaign proceeds and um, sort of the demographic realities that are on the ground. Um, we've seen, you know, campaigns score really, really big wins on the left in recent years as a result of syncing those two things with each other, running the kind of campaign that, you know, people in the district would actually want to um, cast a ballot for, and not just cast a ballot for, but get socially excited about in addition to politically excited about would really be the key. Um, and trying to find ways to make it less a dull errand and more, um, you know, trains are actually really cool. Like if you get on them and you ride them, like you, you know, you, you, you actually ride one of these things. It's actually pretty great in a big city um, and anywhere and emphasizing the, the cultural and the social part of it, rather than I think falling a little bit more into, um, you know, sort of the trap of making it seem as if we're, we're advancing equity and we're advancing taxing the rich and we're advancing transit as sort of these errands that are very morose that we have to do as a matter of um, ideological fidelity. I think it starts with the fact that um, cities that have mass transit in them are just way cooler to be in. And you can see that based off of the fact that people want to live in them. So why not? Why don't we just put it everywhere? Shouldn't it be that simple? I got another question um, via message. In terms of pivoting away from neoliberalism, is there a way for cities to fund themselves? A particular tax cities should look into or just raising debt? Yeah, so at this stage, debt is way less of a boogeyman than I think maybe it's been in past years because you're talking about civic debts 
in the case of four thrust for example that would have had a horizon of 30 years um we don't have 30 years and everybody is pretty clear on the fact that we really don't have 30 day 30 years we might have to we might not have 30 days but we definitely don't have 30 years with respect to the climate crisis um or meeting it at the scale that it exists in so that um concerns around deficit spending or debt spending i think seem increasingly absurd um now to a larger block of voters than maybe they did in 1970 you know you you think about the fact that voters at that time really were contending with a new economic reality and sort of shifting economic plates voters in the 1970s a lot of uncertainty around oil oil prices deindustrialization which we 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 mentioned before um and sort of really the decay of the governing economic logic of keynesianism which worked for many people pretty well since the end of the war um so you can even if we don't agree with it i think historically we can place ourselves in the in the shoes of somebody who was a voter in 1970 or 1975, looking at sort of the way that this reality is playing out and understand um, some of the reluctance. I think that's just a, a quantitatively and qualitatively very different political reality than the one that we're operating in right now, um, to where I think debt spending um, would be maybe more palatable to more people. On top of that, the fact that you have, you know, like 100 individuals that that have or, or um, have as much net worth as like 50% of the entire country might even be more drastic than that. Um, and so that being the case, I think the idea of actually, um, you know, saying maybe they should be the ones paying for it uh, shouldn't really be a controversial solution and paying more, putting more of the emphasis on what that progressive revenue is actually going to get people, I think is something that I would I would emphasize as well. Um, I, I do think that you see a little bit of these dynamics play out in the movement around defunding local police departments, where I think sometimes a little bit too much of the emphasis is placed on uh, where the funds would be coming from um, and not enough on where they would be going. Most people would agree, I think, with the idea that you shouldn't have cities that are starved for affordable housing, starved for affordable childcare, starved for transit, starved for libraries. Um, but it's when the emphasis is placed on where the money is coming from. And that in and of itself becomes uh, to many people the goal um, where rhetorically you can run into some problems. And I'm saying this as somebody who is an abolitionist and a socialist. It's just something that I've noticed in the way these discussions play out that um, the funding source is one thing. But when you're showing people, hey, look, we can actually have nice things, then they might actually become a little bit more. Um, there's the potential anyway that they might um, receive uh, the funding mechanism part of it message, you know, that part of the message more palatably if the emphasis is placed on where the revenue is actually going to go, how their lives are going to be improved materially as a result. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say about that part of it. Awesome, thank you. Um, so I guess I think we're about to do some breakout groups, um, but I just wanted to pose one more question for everyone. Uh, and um, we can think about this in our groups and come back and talk about what our answers might be. Um, but uh, kind of the big question for tonight is considering the differences in the context between Seattle 50 years ago and San Francisco now, what differences do we need to consider as socialists operating on the San Francisco electoral terrain? And how do lessons from forward thrust transfer to here and now? And I will put both of those kind of big questions into the chat so we can have them in our groups. Awesome. Thanks so much, y'all. Thank you. Thank you again, Sean.
Yeah, appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for coming tonight. Um, and if you want to get more involved in the ballot measure campaign and you aren't already, um, you can join one of our committees and uh, watch the chapter calendar to find more about uh, find more out about events. Um, and there are chapters or there are channels in the chapter Slack that you can join as well. Um, we are looking into a number of suggestions and possibilities for ballot measures on the electoral board. We will have updates for the chapters. We get closer to final proposals. Um, we're, you know, continuing to work diligently on, you know, finding out what's what's uh, going to be what's going to be doable, what's what sounds interesting, and what's out there for us to uh, boost up. So, thank you so much for coming. Um, have a great night, and uh, we will see you around soon. Mm -hmm.